to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Full by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the hidden role of chance in life and in the markets. We've done the black swan and we've done anti-fragile before. Now, it's time for Full by Randomness. And we're going to do something a little bit uh, strange and start by talking about Full by Randomness by talking about a completely different book, The Millionaire Next Door. So, this was written by Thomas J. Stanley. And I think it's representative in a lot of different books that we've read and we've actually reviewed on this podcast. And it's one that uh, the book is filled with statements like, these are the millionaire traits that you need to have if you want to be just like those successful people. The author notes that all these millionaires, they were persistent and they were hardworking and they worked hard throughout their whole career, made a lot of money, saved a lot of money and they eventually became millionaires. Yeah, I think it's unavoidable in a lot of books like think of the Steve Jobs autobiography we had. As you're reading the book, it's as if Steve Jobs, with every decision he made, was the right one and then he knocked everything out of the park and ended up successful and he was inevitably going to go that way. In addition to persistence and hard work, they looked for other traits of millionaires and they found that another common trait was risk-taking. So, the the people who eventually became millionaires, they were very uh, risk-seeking. They looked to take big risks and those risks paid off and they made a lot of money. And when they made a whole bunch of money, they were the ones writing the books and say, hey, these are the, this is the formula for success. Work hard, take a whole bunch of risks, and then eventually you'll end up successful. Exactly. So, what this is, is missing is that uh, Taleb says that risk-taking is a big trait of millionaires, but he says that risk-taking is also a big trait of bankruptcies as well. So, it could go either way. You could take risks and come out on top, or you could take risks and uh, nobody reads your book because you own money to the government. <laughs> yeah, so you're missing that whole cohort of the bum on the street who's homeless at 50 years old because they sold the, the wedding ring and sold the house <laughs> and the kid's car and everything like that and put it all on the line and then they lost their whole family as a result. Whereas some of those people, right, they sold everything and they ended up being the family's best friend because they ended up multi-millionaires. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. The same set of decisions lead to two completely opposite outcomes and we fail to actually hold these alternative histories in our heads. Exactly. So, he's not saying that people like Warren Buffett are not skilled, but he's just saying that, hey, given a large enough population and these random things that happen over time, somebody's going to come out on top and make billions and billions of dollars with a Mm. decades-long career of a successful investing track record. Yeah. If you look at Tony Robbins' book, Money Master the Game, he speaks to say the 20 best investors over the last few decades. They've beaten the market on average for pretty much every year that they've been an investor. But by pure chance alone, if you've got 100 million different investors, I don't know if that's the number, but by pure chance, you're going to have some people who Mm. end up being that lucky. And then if you ask them, was it luck? And they'll say, no, these are our (laughs) investment (laughs) philosophies. Follow the same path that we did and you can get the same results. But so, what what Taleb is saying here is that our brain sees the world as far less random than it actually is. Rare events are explaining more and more and more of the world we live in, but at the same time, they remain as counterintuitive as as ever. He says that it's kind of like there's two planets. There's the planet on which we actually live, which is uh, very random. And then there's the planet that we think that everybody is convinced we live in this this world where it's deterministic, where the future is determined by our actions and our decisions. But Taleb is saying it's really guided a lot by luck and randomness. So when you dig into the Taleb rabbit hole, all his books are in one way or another about risk and arriving at the understanding that probability is not just a computation of odds, it's the acceptance of the lack of certainty in our knowledge and finding out ways to dealing with our ignorance, which is a default setting and a flaw that we've got as a human being if, mm. you, uh, if it goes left unexamined. 
So when Taleb says the world is far more random than we think, he's not saying that everything is random and success is based purely on luck alone. He's saying that, look, of course, chance favors are prepared. Things like working hard, showing up on time, wearing a clean shirt, using deodorant, all these conventional things, these are necessary for success, but these aren't the things that cause success. You need persistence, you need doggedness, you need perseverance, but just those things alone without any element of luck aren't going to get you there. He says it's like, you know, if you you need to buy a lottery ticket in order to win the lottery, but the trip where you walked to the store to buy the lottery ticket isn't the thing that made you successful. Absolutely. We aren't actually much better than our ancestors who roamed the savannah and one day the primitive tribesman, he scratched his nose and all of a sudden rain fell down and then the whole tribe just had this new ritual of (laughs) rain scratching when they haven't had rain and they wanted rain and things like that. Very similar to today. Like we assume that economic prosperity is due to the Fed or the RBA or the Bank of England cutting or raising interest rates and all of a sudden the economy does all this stuff. Or if a new president joins a company and then all of a sudden the company does poorly or does very well, we you know attribute it all to the president. Or when it comes to things like coronavirus and the decisions of what the world leaders are actually doing, we think that it all comes down to what that leader did as opposed to everything being attributed to the chance and luck that is inherent in the world. Yeah, it's a a funny thing he talks about this attribution bias. He says that we generally attribute all the good things that happened to our skills and all the bad things that happened, we say, oh, that was bad luck. And so, that gives us a false sense of confidence. He says that about 90% of people think that they're above average drivers, which is just mathematically impossible. But I'd say I'm I'm in the top 50% of the best drivers. I'd say I'm... (laughs) I'd say I'm, no, I reckon I'm, I reckon I'm a pretty shit driver. <laughs> well, you're in the, the, the rare 10% of people that admits that they're in the bottom half, but most people would say that they're in the top half, which is just not possible. So this book, like all of Taleb's book, it is a bit of an uncorrelated rant about different topics. It's <laughs> bloody difficult for it's us hard. to pull into a, a coherent episode. It's very hard work to make these episodes by Taleb. Great books. They feel amazing when you read them. But then when you, you're trying to pull the notes together, you're trying to work out which pieces of the jigsaw puzzle can you fit together to make a nice sounding episode. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> So, this book is all about luck disguised as non-luck. That's when we're claiming our skills and abilities instead of recognizing the importance of luck. And he's saying that it's also about randomness disguised as non-randomness. So, we think it's deterministic. We think our actions are causing the results and we're neglecting all of the randomness that played a part in it. By just recognizing how much randomness and luck is involved in literally everything that you do, your success, other people's success and events in the world, you might humble yourself and turn down your assumptions and your abilities and you're just going to have a more accurate view of how the world actually works. So, we've got a story here of two blokes. First, we've got Nero who's a conservative trader. His education background is in history and statistics. His home is a little bit quaint and understated. He prefers fine art and books for his entertainment and he's driven the same Volkswagen for a whole bunch of years. So, he is a trader and he's got a conservative method. So, some years he has good years, other years he has less than good years but he never has really, really bad years. His annual income ranged from about 300 grand to a peak of 2.5 million. So, he's doing pretty well but his income's not just off the charts like other traders might actually reach and that's because his personality and trading style is risk averse to the extreme. He is less about chasing profits, more about avoiding the big catastrophes. And compare that to John. John's the high yield trader. His house is massive. It's just across the street from Nero's, but he's got a couple of extra bedrooms. He's got a, a tennis court out the front, a swim pool out the back. He lives dangerously. He's got uh, him and his wife have got matching his and hers Ferraris parked side by side in the driveway. 
John, he generally makes like 20 mil in, a, in an average year, but he's made 200 mil in his best year ever. And he loves risk. His lifestyle and his trading is fueled by risk and it's fueled by debt. He's never had a really, really bad year, but he's only really one trade away from catastrophe. So lucky fools do not have the slightest suspicion that they might be lucky fools. If you ask your mate there, John, you said, are you a lucky fool? He'd say, nah, mate, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a genius. Smart. I'm a genius. <laughs> yeah. Look at me. I've got my his and her Ferrari. So they get this string of wins and they inject so much self-confidence in themselves that they fool themselves that they're the ones who are so smart outperforming the markets. Yeah. Uh, Taleb says that this trading strategy, it's kind of like taking a nap on the railway track. For most of the day, you're going to be relaxed. You're going to be calm. You're going to be confident. You're going to be refreshing yourself with this nap. But as soon as that train comes along, <laughs> goodbye, your skull gets crushed. So this trading strategy and this lifestyle that's fueled by debt and it's fueled by risk, most of the time you're going to make a decent amount of money. You're going to be doing pretty well, but you never know when that train is going to roll through and wipe you out entirely. So this is what happened to John. It took seven years to make him an absolute hero, taking all that risk when things are going well. And then it took only seven days to make him a failure. So his overindulgence on all this risk really cost him his job and he had all this excessive leverage. So when things went down, it magnified the downness of everything. And he was successful for the previous market cycle. And you know, the future is not necessarily going to be exactly like the last 10 years. So when that thing unexpected comes out of the blue, it really knocked him for six and cleaned him up. Psychologists have found that people prefer to make 70,000 when everybody else makes 60 rather than making 80 when everyone else is making 90. So even though Nero knows this, uh, he saw John, he saw him with his, with his hot wife and his kids going to private schools and his tennis court and his Ferraris and his swimming pool and he knew that his strategy was much better but he couldn't help but feeling that pang of envy. He wanted some of what John had but one day Nero, he was vindicated. As he pulled out of his driveway to go to work, he saw John standing there. He was in his shorts and singlet. He wasn't in his business suit. The truck pulled up, loaded up his Ferraris, took him away. The banker came over and slapped an eviction notice on his front door. John blew up. John was cooked. Yeah, I could imagine Nero being there and <laughs> being vindicated along. So on, the, on the way up, when John's just driving the Ferrari, he's like, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? I'm just being risk averse. I know it makes rational, complete sense, my trading strategy. And it's very hard to stick to that strategy when you're seeing everyone else mm. kicking ass by playing these high-risk games. When making our evaluations of something, we need to look at the alternative histories. Most of the time, we only see the observed histories, what actually happened. But we also need to take into account the unobserved things, the things that could have happened but didn't, but they were still very much a part of the probability of what turned out. So by this method, uh, the what he calls the bizarre accounting method, he says that your dentist is rich, very rich. When it comes to expectation, the dentist is actually considerably richer than the rock star who's been chauffeured around in their pink stretch hummer or the entrepreneur who's collecting private jets or the stock market speculator who invested at the start of Bitcoin. The dentist is actually a much safer path when you look at the expectation and you look at all of the observed and the unobserved histories. Because that's what we're going to do when we're trying to observe reality. We need to take into account the average of the people who enter it and not for not just the sample of people who succeeded in it. So the rock star you were just talking about, we can only see the ones who are rocking up in the Lamborghinis and mm. kicking ass like Bono or U2 and you know absolutely loaded. And if you're just taking them into account, they're obviously 
And Rockstar's a good profession to take. Rockstar's a great yeah. profession, but we're not looking at the, all the 99.99% of people who enter music and they actually just never get anywhere and don't make it and don't make money. So the average, including Bono, down to the person who's unemployed, it's a very different story, isn't it, compared to the dentist? Yeah, very much so. He gives us another story. We had Nero versus John before. Now we've got, uh, this is a different John. This is Johnny, Johnny the janitor and Denise the dentist. If you look at Johnny the janitor, he won a multi, multi-million dollar lottery prize pool. He buys this massive mansion, moves into a wealthy suburb and lives next door to Denise the dentist. Denise the dentist is a bit more modest house, but she saved up from making a pretty decent salary every single year. She was looking in people's mouths, drilling teeth. But what the difference here is, if you relive those same lives, if you, you run them through a simulation, pretty much uh, every single time, once Denise graduates from dentist school, she's going to have a pretty narrow range of possibilities. As long as she's got the right insurance, she'll pretty much end up at the same spot. She's never going to be homeless living on the street, but she's also probably never going to be you know, mooring her private yacht in the Cayman Islands or anything like that. If you look at Johnny the janitor... Most of the time, he's going to be wiping the floors and every now and then he might win the lottery and move into the rich suburb. So, you've got to look at the all of the possible scenarios, not just that one time where you got lucky. Yeah, it sounds pretty weird to look at all the observed and, un- and unobserved things. I've been watching recently a TV series on uh, Amazon Prime called The Man in the High Castle and what it looks into is the alternative history of Germany winning the Second World War. Because if you take yourself back to that time, there's a real possibility that Germany mm. would have won if Hitler actually hadn't gone down and tried to beat Russia and try and beat those in England in the West and getting too ambitious. He could have actually won that world war. And this is what the TV series looks at. It looks at Hitler. He won that and then he went to the US, took it over. And Japan, their ally at the time, owns half of the US and Germany, the other half. Very ridiculous thing, but if you look at the observed and unobserved history, that is a real possibility of something that could have happened. So you can apply this to many fields like wars, politics, medicine, investments, even all your personal choices. And if you judge the outcome based on what happened, it's called resulting. Yeah, we mentioned in the book by Annie Duke, Thinking and Bets, you need to separate the quality of the outcome from the quality of the decision. So the decision is something that stands alone and you've got all these possibilities in front of you and all these things that could pan out. If you just think, hey, I won the lottery, then you think, oh yeah, I should buy a lottery ticket every single day. But of course, many times that doesn't work out. Taleb says that the only people who judge the quality of a decision based on the quality of an outcome are people who fail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's so many times you can do a shitty decision like... Like buying a lottery ticket, man, it's a shitty decision, isn't it? Mathematically, it's, Mathematically, it's not a positive experience. They're going to take a 50% cut. <laughs> but if you ask someone who won the lottery, was that a stupid decision? decision. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best decision of their life. The most vivid example of this idea is the, the example of Russian roulette. So let's imagine someone offers you $10 million to play Russian roulette. Uh, the, you load up the, one of the six chambers with one bullet, put the gun to your head, pull the trigger. Would you do it? Uh, no. 100 mil. I wouldn't. I don't think I would, man. 100 mil. I don't think I would for the That's one, one in six. That's selfish. <laughs> Put it this way. Take that five in six chance that you get 100 mil. Yeah. Give $99 million and invest it in property. You've saved through your risking one in six, you've saved probably 1,000 lives, mate. But the 100 mil was still already there. Someone else has got that 100 mil. Yeah, they're fucking not, not doing good shit with it. <laughs> they're not good people. Well, basically, you've got you've got a five out of six chance that you're going to be rich. Uh, of course, you've got that one out of six chance that you die and nobody ever hears about it. So, again, that becomes an unobserved thing. Uh, 
And of course, say you've got six people playing, one of them dies, five of them get $10 million. They're selling these get-rich-quick schemes. They just found it an amazing way how to make $10 million in two seconds or less. Uh, the journalists are going to splash them on the cover of magazines. They're going to have feature articles made about them. These guys have found the best path to getting rich ever. Absolutely, and they're probably going to keep on playing because it's, so, <laughs> it's such a good game. But of course, in time, the roulette betting fool is going to keep playing and the bad histories are going to eventually catch up and it's very unlikely that they're going to make it to their 50th mm. birthday to tell the tale. Yeah, you've got, you know, if you play it once, you get a pretty good chance of getting pretty rich. But he says that if, say, you've got a thousand players who are playing this Russian roulette every single year, 990 of them are, are going to die. And then, of course, 10 of them are going to get a quarter of a billion dollars over their lifetime. Man, I just can't stop thinking of poor Nero. He should have read this book and then quit it. Just uh, played Russian quit roulette. Play, oh, quit playing the game after he got his his and hers and then just stopped playing. <laughs> Don't you reckon? Well, yeah, I suppose it's a good way to do it. The, the, the probability eventually catches up to you, that's for sure if you're taking massive risks to this extreme. So this $10 million earned through Russian roulette and taking these huge risks, it's not the same value as a quite, as a $10 million earned in a diligent and awful practice of dentistry. The $10 million through dentistry is much more predictable and on average, it doesn't include all those unobserved outcomes of blowing mm. your own brains out. Yeah, that's it. You gotta, you gotta, we've got to shift our accounting method. So on the surface... Um, and to your next door neighbor and to an accountant, you know, $10 million is $10 million. It can buy the same amount of things. Uh, everybody just sees the numbers on the paper. But really, uh, we need to be smarter than the average Joe Blow. We've got to work out that one way of making $10 million is a much more effective way of making $10 million. But reality is actually far more vicious than this game of Russian roulette. It delivers the fatal bullet rather infrequently. So you've got a revolver rather than just having six chambers. It's got thousands of chambers. And after a few dozen tries, you might completely forget mm. about the existence of the bullet and and have this real false sense of security in playing the game. The second way that real life is much more vicious than Russian roulette is that you know that the gun is pointed at your head, you know exactly the risk that the bullet's going to fire out that chamber, but in the real world, you don't even know where the risk is coming from. You don't realize that the whole time you're taking these risks, there's a gun pointed at your head and you don't realize that at any moment, a bullet could fly out of the chamber. And finally, there's an ingratitude factor of people warning people about this abstract thing of this bullet. So say if you're insuring against the possibility of a bullet striking your head, all your investors are going to complain about you spending money and just wasting money on this insurance when nothing actually happened. You should only insure with things that actually do happen, they might say. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like saying, you know, uh, you've got insurance against an earthquake. There's no earthquake for 10 years, man. We just wasted all that money on insuring against earthquakes. Earthquakes never happen. And very few people say, well, thanks for insuring us just in case the earthquake mm. did happen. We were lucky that it didn't happen this time, but at any point it could come along. Mate, I fall for that. When, you, when, <laughs> well, when the insurance bill comes for your car or something, you're like, oh, this is a fucking waste of money. It's a thousand bucks. You could go to something else. <laughs> exactly. Taleb tells a story about how he went to dinner with a friend uh, and this was a friend who, a really good friend who read an advanced copy of his book. So he got a taste for it. Taleb said, let's flip a coin. The loser pays for dinner. Taleb, he lost. He paid for dinner. His friend said, thanks for, thanks for paying. But then the friend said, actually, hang on. No, no thanks. I actually paid for half of that dinner through probability. <laughs> so it takes a real special mindset to have this, but it really is going to be the most effective at seeing reality for what it is. So, so far in this episode, we've been talking a lot in, I guess, abstract and a lot of theories and a lot of ideas and a lot of uh, made-up stories about 
people who do and don't exist. But what we want to do now is bring it down to the the scientific level, I guess, or the psychological level. We want to talk about some of the biases and fallacies that make us miss all of this randomness in the world. First is hindsight bias, which is quite similar to what a few things we've already spoken about. And that is when that when you look at the past, the past is always going to seem deterministic. Uh, since only one single event took place and it looks inevitable that that was the only possible option that could have possibly happened. And our mind's going to interpret most events with the benefit of hindsight, neglecting all the uncertainty and confusion that was actually going down at the time. Yeah, it's like when you're looking back at, uh, at history, you're looking back at a decision a politician made or you're looking back at a time in the stock market and you think, oh, I should have bought then. You already know the answer to the test. You know what happened. So, you look at everything and think, it's so obvious that this is what would have occurred. But it's like, imagine if you went back to that point, you don't know what's going to happen. You're taking the test without knowing the answer in advance. You're going to recognize that actually there's a hell of a lot of uncertainty involved in this. Mm, it's a bit of the I knew it all along effect. It happens in investing. Look, I'm telling myself it at the moment when I started investing in Tesla when it was much cheaper than it is now and it went all the way up. And if you ask me about it, I'd say, yeah, I knew it all along and I'd just claim that <laughs> this whip out this amazing narrative about exactly why Tesla's kicking ass today. Yeah, and through, I guess, a bit of a peek behind the curtain, obviously coronavirus is going on, Melbourne's going through lockdowns, we don't know, we're recording through the magic of podcasting in a bit advance but before when this episode gets up. And we've just gone through a period where Tesla's gone about 6x in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Hopefully, by the time this episode airs, if they've crashed, <laughs> you'll know that Jonesy didn't know it all along <laughs> at, at all. We'll see what history uh, you land in when you're listening. And a more, a more vicious effect of hindsight bias when we look back and think, oh, it's so obvious. We knew that all along. Oh, yeah, I can, I can see exactly what's happened here. It makes you think that you're then good at predicting the future. You think, oh, well, if I can predict the past so well, then uh, I can make decisions now that are going to predict the future and I'm going to make it out phenomenally well. Yeah, this is where it comes down to these black swan events that come out of nowhere that are totally unpredictable and those people who are so sure in themselves at how good they are at predicting, then they're very, very susceptible to the black swan events that come and they'll clean them up and hit them for six. So that's a hindsight bias or the I knew it all along effect, recognizing that when you're looking back at history, you miss all of that randomness because only one thing took place and you're neglecting all the things that could have happened but didn't. The next thing that he talks about is survivorship bias. This is where you only see the winners and you forget about all of the losers. Let's say you're God for 10 minutes and you can conduct wild experiments. You get an infinite number of monkeys in front of typewriters. You let them clap away for a period of time and then if there's enough monkeys, and here we've got infinite, so every history actually happens, sooner or later, one monkey is going to type out the exact version of the Iliad. I don't I, know what that uh, what it is, but maybe you should say it's... It's, very, uh, it's a very famous book, uh, one that I personally haven't read, uh, but the odds of that happening are, are ridiculously low. If you think about the, the length of that book, plus the odds of you know 1 in 26 getting the right letter or 1 in 27 if you include spaces and not to mention punctuation and multiply that by the amount of characters there are in that book, the odds of getting it exactly right are extremely, extremely low, but with an infinite number of monkeys, one of them is just going to, by pure luck and randomness, is going to get it. Yeah, and when that monkey finishes it... Uh, We've really found a hero amongst all the monkeys and would that mean like anyone listening right now, you're going to invest all your life savings to bet that that monkey is going to write the, the next Odyssey next? Exactly. And another book I haven't read there, but uh, that, that second level of it 
is is the most interesting part. So the first level saying you've got this one hero monkey that's magically written the Iliad, would you then bet on that same monkey then writing the Odyssey next? And this is sort of the idea of that, can you extrapolate past performances to uh, relevantly predict future performances? And the answer here is it depends on the number of monkeys for their early results. So if someone's performing better than the crowd in the past, it is more likely than not that they're going to do better in the future. But the presumption might be very, very weak mm. to the point that it's useless in inferring that at all. So it depends on two factors, the randomness of the profession and the number of monkeys in operation. If you start with five monkeys and one of them banged out the, the masterpiece, then you, it's probably a decent bet that they're onto something and that they could replicate their success. I'd say it's the cognitive revolution that happened in the species <laughs> the of one. monkey. I think that'd be more likely than uh, something else, right? If you only got five monkeys. Correct. Yeah, exactly. It's a You can probably attribute a lot of uh, skill and ability to that. But if you've got like 10 billion monkeys and then that one out of 10 billion magically got it, you'd have much less confidence in it being able to replicate that same success. Mate, I reckon uh, I disagree with you there. You said a billion. In the book, he said, uh, a billion to the power of a billion. Oh, a, b- Mate, I'd be, <laughs> a billion to the power of a billion. Mate, I'd be very impressed. With one in 10 billion still. That's like, yeah. there might be a billion monkeys on earth now. So there's one out there. That would be very there. impressive, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. A billion to the power of a billion. That's a hell of a lot of monkeys. Uh, but I guess like it's something we do all the time. We look back at, at history. We see these winners and we see how well they've done. And we think that that's going to be a reliable indicator of what's going to happen in future. But we always forget about, okay, how many people started out down this path? How many people dropped off along the way? And what were the percentage chances of that one person getting to the other side? So in real life, it is much more difficult than this monkey problem because in the real world, the monkeys aren't countable and they're not visible. They're all hidden away. So when me and you, Asha, we finish this podcast, we walk down to buy a coffee from a cafe. There's quite a few successful cafes around. And that's all we see. We don't mm. see the probably hundreds that have gone under in Albert Park. We've seen a lot of them. We've seen <laughs> They've <laughs> popped up and dropped off. Well, that's it. When you got the benefit of time here and I've been here for a while, we've seen quite a few go up and we've kind of predicted like they're not going to last very long. <laughs> and the final thing we need to be careful of on top of hindsight bias and survivorship bias, we need to distinguish between the signal and the noise. There's so much information going on out there, but a lot of that information is completely irrelevant. Most of it is just noise. We need to be able to cut through that and work out what the signal is. There's one uh, example here that really uh, reminded me of somebody I know quite well. Let's <laughs> say, let's say, okay, you got a you got a share portfolio. It's got an average return of 15% a year. You have got a volatility of 10% a year. Uh, and what he's saying is that the the probability of having a winning a positive year. So a year where you've made money is 93%. Um, each quarter, you've got a 77% chance of winning. Each month, you've got a 67% chance. Each day is 54%. If you check uh, each minute, you've got a 50.2% chance of having a positive minute. So if you think about someone who checks their portfolio every minute, they're going to have 241 pleasurable minutes and 239 unpleasurable minutes. Whereas if you thought, okay, I'm just going to check it once a year on my birthday, you're going to have 19 happy birthdays and just one out of 20 birthdays where you're not so happy. So so Taleb is saying a lot of the minute-to-minute movements is just noise and it isn't signal of what's actually happening to that share price. Yeah, I think it's a bit uh, different between the person you know, which you're referring to me, obviously. <laughs> And uh, the dentist here, because when it, when I check, it's all it's all it's all signal and very little noise. <laughs> I suppose if you're she's going you, up, mate. If you it's invest going to the moon. in one stock that's got a hundred percent positive 
<laughs> every day goes up, then I suppose you can check it every day. That's me. But what happens What happens if it's not 100% when it goes down? It's not going to be so good. Well, we'll see the alternative history when people listen to this episode. <laughs> It'll be pretty funny, actually. So there's a, a couple of conclusions Taleb says. He says that most of the things that we see in the world around us is just noise uh, and it's very hard to pass out of that. What is signal? What are the things that are actually important in terms of predictions? We also need to recognize emotionally, we're not designed to cope with the losses. We feel the losses a lot worse than we feel the wins. So if we're seeing more losses, they weigh more heavily on our emotions and they could impact our short-term decision-making. So Nassim Taleb, who understands all these observed and unobserved histories, understands the difference between signal and noise. When he sees someone in a suit feeling like they're really important, checking their stock portfolio just at the coffee break or something, he kind of just smiles and laughs in a lot of contempt at this loser. <laughs> Quite literally, I think. I'm not, not exaggerating for Taleb. Taleb says a lot of stuff where sometimes it's like theory and made up, but I think in this case, he would actually laugh in someone's face. Yeah. <laughs>